Open up to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 10. After a couple-week hiatus, we are resuming our series this morning in the Gospel according to Mark. Gospel Mark, chapter 10. Please pray with me. Father, this morning we are so grateful for the gift of life and breath, the freedom to gather together as your people to worship you, to fix our gaze upon you, to encourage one another in our faith, to serve one another, to carry one another's burdens. We're so grateful for your word that is a light to our life that guides us in, in times of difficulty and darkness. We ask now, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word, that you would give us a sight of your glory that transforms our minds and our hearts and our lives. Father, I pray that you would give us faith to follow you, whatever the cost. Empower us by your spirit now to see and hear your word for us today. We pray this in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, Gospel Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. Follow along as I read here. This is God's holy and authoritative word. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but, with, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last 
and the last first. And may God bless the preaching of his word. Aaron Ralston may not be a, a household name, but I enjoy watching documentaries, um, especially documentaries about mountain climbers. And Aaron Ralston is a successful mechanical engineer and a mountain climber who spent his 20s chasing his dream of ascending all 59 14ers in Colorado. Now, 14ers, if you're not aware, are, uh, refers to those mountain peaks that are 14,000 feet in altitude. Aaron was good at it and eventually became the first person to climb all 60 of them or all 59 of them during winter. Now, like many climbers, he felt he could accomplish anything due to his skill, his hard work, and his determination. And Aaron was successful at it. However, in April of 2003, Aaron was doing a, a solo descent of a mountain in Utah when something unexpected happened. He was climbing down and he put his hand on a boulder that became dislodged and it pinned his hand to the mountain. He was trapped. He worked hard to loosen the rock. He tried using his rope. He tried using pulley systems to free the boulder, but nothing could dislodge this rock. He was trapped. It wouldn't budge. After five days, five days trapped on the side of this mountain by himself with little food and little water, he knew there was only one path to survival. Aaron had to break his own forearm and then take a dull pocket knife and amputate the lower part of his right arm so that he could survive long enough to rappel down the mountain and then hike seven miles to get help. Aaron recognized that unless he was willing to do something unfathomable and costly, he would not make it. But he weighed the cost and came to the agonizing decision that despite the pain and the loss, it would be worth it. It's a vivid illustration. This morning, we see a man who comes to Jesus. He is successful. He is well-intentioned. And Jesus issues a challenge to this man and to you and I. Will you do whatever it takes to reach eternal life. But with the challenge, Jesus also gives us the incentive. He tells us that he offers us something far better, a treasure that will far outweigh the value of anything that we will ever have to give up to get it, however precious and good they seem to be. Jesus calls us to cast off everything that hinders us from receiving the treasure of eternal life. So in this section, just before Jesus walks into Jerusalem closer to his death, he gives us a loving but sober warning about what discipleship requires. So let's look this morning at three components of discipleship. First one, we must recognize the urgency of our need. Let's look at this first section. This man comes running up to Jesus. What do we know about this man who comes running up to Jesus? Well, given this description, we can see that, first of all, this man had something bothering him enough to lead him to run to Jesus. This man was respectful. The way that he approaches him, he calls him good teacher. He was showing him respect. He admired Jesus. 
We also see that he was a pious man, a man who had studied God's word and was diligent in keeping the law all his days. Matthew, in his account of this, tells us that this man was young. Luke tells us that he was a ruler of some kind. So this man was successful. He had influence. He was a high achiever. This man was wealthy. He had many possessions. In other words, this was a man that you would have respect for. This was a man who you would enjoy being around. He was the kind of guy that a single young woman would enjoy taking home to meet the parents. This is the kind of guy that you would enjoy having as a friend. Were this man in the church today, you know that he would be an usher. He would be on the finance committee. He would be serving in various ways. He would be a leader. He would be dressed well, responsible, exemplary in everything that he does. So this isn't the kind of man that you would look at with pity. This isn't the kind of man that you would think his life was falling apart. No, this man had the appearance of a well-ordered life. In other words, he would fit right in here. He would look a lot like you and I today. So this guy runs up to Jesus and, and look at what he does. Verse 17, he knelt before him. He knelt before Jesus. This is a posture of neediness. And the man asked Jesus an urgent question, good teacher, what must I do to earn eternal life? So this was a man who had wealth. This was a man who had accomplished much, and yet he recognized that he lacked salvation. But the problem was, and you can see it in his question, this man, pious as he was, well-learned as he was, humble as he was, needy as he was, he had the assumption that whatever he lacked, it was within his means to achieve. He thought eternal life could be earned. This man had the same legalistic tendencies that the Pharisees and that so many of us today live with. If I can be good enough, hopefully God will let me into heaven. But Jesus sees through it. Jesus gives him the law. He points him to the commandments to which the man replies that he has obeyed all his life. You can almost imagine this man sighing out with relief. Oh, that's, so that's it? Well, I've, I've done all that. I've done all that all my days. Is that all I have to do? I have never committed adultery. I've never stolen anything. I've never murdered anyone. And Jesus rolls his eyes and rebukes this man. Is that what it says? Look again at verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus doesn't roll his eyes. He doesn't cross his arms. He doesn't respond in anger. He doesn't rebuke this man. He's not frustrated with him or annoyed. Rather, Jesus looks at this man. He gazes at him. He catches his eye. He got his attention. It was a look of fatherly affection. Recently, my sons have told me that at times I have what they call a pastor face. <laughs> it's news to me. 
They can't describe exactly what it is, but at times when I'm talking with them, they look and they say, Dad, you've got your pastor face on. It's just me. And I don't know what it looks like, but my hope is that it reflects something of what Jesus looked at this man with in this moment because he looked at him with affection. He looked at him with love. He looked at him with compassion and sympathy. He wasn't angry with him. In our rebellion, in our self-righteousness, in that moment when we declare that we are more righteous and less needy than we truly are, isn't it amazing that Jesus does not turn his back on us? He doesn't tap his foot at us. Rather, he looks at us with love. He looks at us with steadfast love and compassion. Friends, there is hope for us because of this, because in all the times when we blow it, Jesus responds to sinful people who don't think they need grace with compassion. When you read God's word, I hope that you see God's face shining through the words. And when you, when you read it, when you're looking at this word and when you're reading it in the morning, that you see God's loving face, his redemptive orientation toward you looking at you. Love guided Jesus' interaction with this man, and it, hit, it guides his orientation, his posture towards you and I today. It was his love for him that Jesus challenges this man because he wanted him to see just how needy he actually was. But love does not leave, does not leave others unchallenged on the path of destruction. And Jesus sees the path that this man was on. It was not good, as well-intentioned as he was, and love does not allow him to just go on. This man was spiritually bankrupt, good as he was, respectable as he was, wealthy as he was. He was spiritually bankrupt, and he was oblivious to that fact. He thought he needed to just perform a little better. But when, the, when Jesus calls this man to sell all he has in exchange for eternal life, in exchange for treasure in heaven, he wanted to help this man see that his heart was in need of complete and radical transformation. He needed a new perspective and to recognize that like the children in this previous passage, he was completely dependent upon grace. And we need that perspective as well. We need to see that apart from Christ, our good works will never be enough. We will never repent enough or cry enough tears or give enough or pray enough or fulfill enough commandments to earn God's approval. No, we need to look at this man and realize that we are more like him than we're comfortable with. But as we recognize our need, we can look up and see the love in Jesus' eyes. We can see the compassionate gaze that he put, uh, turns toward us. So as disciples, first of all, we must see our need. And secondly, we must cast off anything that hinders us from following Jesus. Point two. This young man... How does he respond when Jesus challenges him? He is dismayed. He is cut to the heart. He goes away deeming the cost too great. His worldly wealth choked out his ability to comprehend the treasure offered to him in heaven. In one moment, he thought he was doing pretty well until he was confronted with how desperate his situation really is. 
It's like going in to see the doctor for a routine checkup. You're in good health, and you, you imagine this doctor's probably going to recommend that you, you take a little more vitamin D. You wear sunscreen a little more to guard against skin cancer, but probably a little tweak that he's going to make for you. And, and the doctor looks at you with grave concern and tells you that they found a mass and that they need to operate within hours, not days, if you want to make it beyond the week. Jesus gets this man's attention to, to help him see how desperate his situation truly is. This man was given the choice, do you love your stuff more than the prospect of eternal life? And he went away sorrowful, for he had stuff that had a stranglehold on his heart. That is the power of sin that makes worldly comforts, worldly ease, pleasure more attractive than following Jesus into eternal life. It's not first about uh, stuff that you do or don't do, but it's about what you worship, what you trust in, what is it that you love? You see, sin and idolatry is loving something else more than we love God. It's placing a higher value on stuff. It's placing a higher value on ourselves. It's about what rules our heart. Sinclair Ferguson, writing on this passage, says, something was missing. One thing which amounted to everything His life was still centered on himself rather than on the kingdom of God. And one sentence was enough to teach this man the truth about himself that had been hidden all these years. He had outwardly kept the commandments, but there was a God in his life that he prized more than the true God. He had great wealth. Sadly, with his heart deception now unveiled, he turned around and went back to the idol worship from which he had almost escaped. Only now he knew the truth about himself. This rich young man made his decision and he decided he preferred his present earthly possessions to future treasure in heaven. And so here Jesus Again, looks around. He gazes at his disciples. The stakes are high. He wants their attention. How difficult, he says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed, and rightly so. They would have been under the impression, as, as, as people did reading the Old Testament, as people who followed the Lord, that, blessing, that material blessing was often seen as a reward for obedience. So they would, they would look at this man. He was respectable. He was following the commandments. And Jesus says of this man that it is impossible How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Here's the thing. Jesus is not teaching that it is sinful to be wealthy. Okay, just to be clear. He's not saying that it's wrong universally to have wealth. He's not saying that everyone who has riches is damned. That's not what he's saying. He is not calling all of us today to completely divest our bank accounts and to live in poverty and to display our trust in God that way. So everyone breathe out a sigh of relief. And yet this verse 
should cause every one of us to tremble. Look again at verse 24. Jesus reiterates his point and he drives it home. He says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there are some folks who have had creative explanations for what this means. Is this uh, a camel? Okay, there's a gate, and the camel had to, like, get down on its knees, and you had to shove him through, and it was really hard, but, but you can make it through. No, that's not what's going on. There is no evidence for any such gate or anything like that. No, Jesus is simply saying, saying that the largest animal in Palestine, a camel, it would be easier for a, this large animal to fit through the smallest opening, a needle, the eye of a needle, easier to do that than to imagine a rich person entering the kingdom of heaven. So who's he talking about? Are we all thinking of Bill Gates or Elon Musk or, you know, or those uber-rich people in this world. I've often heard the, the definition of the rich are those who have more money than I do. When Holly and I were dating, she drove a white 1996 Pontiac Sunfire. Anybody remember that car? They don't make them anymore. You know why they don't make them anymore? Because they were trash. <laughs> but they were cheap. They were affordable. She owned it. It was hers. In fact, I might just owe our marriage to this car because this car broke down so frequently that while we were dating, she would often call me, hey, can you come over and fix this? My, it won't start. You need a, I, it needed a, a new alternator swapped out or a belt replaced, um, windows that wouldn't roll up, that we'd have to you know, swap out the, you know, the window motors, regulators. This car was a disaster. It was an eyesore. It wasn't pretty. But one year, Holly went on a mission trip to the country of Bolivia and was with a group of locals that were indeed living in poverty. And she, they were asking about life in Texas. What was, it, what was her life like? And she said, well, you know, it's, you know, it, it's kind of hard. You know, I have this car that, and she started it. She was about to tell them how challenging the car was. And they stopped and said, you have a car? That's amazing. That is so, you are rich. We didn't know that we were in the presence of royalty. You own a car. <laughs> she never considered herself rich. We, we often don't either, but compared to much of the world in all of history, every one of us in this room with air conditioning and, and refrigerators uh, is wealthier than we might realize. So here, here's the thing. This passage applies to you and me. So what is it about wealth that makes salvation so difficult? Is it, is it wrong to have riches? Here, here's the danger. Here's what Jesus is saying. Wealth makes us comfortable. Wealth tends to remove our sense of need. Wealth can trick us into thinking that we are self-sufficient, and it almost always leads to a lack of contentment unless we have just a little more. Wealth tends to make us forget God. See, when Holly drove that car, she spent a lot of time in prayer because it would often break down. 
when, when, when we have newer cars, we don't, we don't pray as much because it's easier. We don't, we don't need to worry about that. There's nothing wrong with having stuff, but we must not allow that to lure us into this thought that we don't need the Lord. This, um, a couple days ago on Friday, we, were, we had a pastor's meeting. We were praying as pastors for, for you and for our church. And uh, John, senior pastor, was giving thanks to God for this amazing financial provision. We're, we're just continually thanking God for the various ways that he's blessed our church, expressing gratitude to him. And, and John is praying, and he says, thank you, Lord, that as we look for land, thank you that the prices on land continue to rise beyond our means. <laughs> I'm sitting there praying. I was like, what? <laughs> like we're, we're looking at land prices and we have, we have money and yet the land continues to go up above what we think we could ever imagine paying. And John just said, thank you that the prices continue to soar. He said, because... Because of the rising prices, Lord, we are forced to continue to depend upon you in full awareness of our need. We are not sufficient on our own. That's right. That's good. I'm so grateful for his example in this regard and for calling us, even in prayer, thank you, Lord, for the trials that force us to depend upon you. Thank you for not allowing us to, to carry on thinking that we can do it all on our own. But it's not just wealth that hinders us from following Jesus. You see the disciples responding in astonishment, then who can be saved? This wasn't because everyone there was wealthy, but because they recognized Jesus' point that there are all manner of things in life that we tend to trust in and love and prioritize that, that hinders us from following God. For many of us, it is indeed wealth and the cares of this world. You think of the parable of the sower, the cares of this world that choke out the word and its intended effect. But for others of us, it's something else, comfort, ease, a career, the pursuit of power, perhaps a relationship. Or maybe it's a, a life of busyness, serving others, desiring others' approval that crowds out the central thing that God calls us to do. So what is it that comes to mind for you? What is it that, that hinders you from following Jesus? What is it that threatens to supplant the priority and the supremacy, the primacy of God in your heart? What holds sway over your heart? So Jesus here, aware of how high the stakes are, calls this young man and the disciples and you and I to identify what hinders us, what holds us back, and to cast it off. Like the mountain climber, to realize that to do otherwise would mean certain death and to take drastic measures. James Edwards in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark said, followers of, followers of Jesus must be clear that discipleship is not a both-and but in either or. You see, Jesus will have no divided allegiances. He will have all of us or he will not have us at all. Jesus speaks, again, with the utmost love. 
and compassion. Gravity, to warn us of how dangerous it is to allow anything to rule our hearts but himself. Cut it off, gouge it out, he says elsewhere, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Jesus speaks in stark language throughout the Gospels. It is this attitude that we're to have if we're to follow Christ. It is the attitude that Jim Elliot had when he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. It is recognizing that that God's not after our money. He's not after our stuff. He's not against our happiness. Rather, He wants to bless us beyond our imagination, beyond our wildest dreams. He does not simply call us to cast off our idols because we can't simply do that. Rather, He wants to displace them. He wants to dethrone them so that He can take the place in our hearts. There's a wonderful article written in the 18th century by a man named Thomas Chalmers called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. I would recommend it to you. It's a wonderful, it's a short read, and it's a life-changing read. And in it, Chalmers argues that the way to be rid of sin, the way to be rid of an idol in your heart is not by just not doing it. It's by replacing it with something greater. The only way to get rid of an old affection is by replacing it with a new affection. Is that what, that's what Jesus offers to us. He wants our whole heart, not just part. We can't live for ourselves throughout the week and give him a hat tip on Sunday and think that we're doing well. We need to radically reorient our entire perspective on everything in our lives through the lens of How does this help me follow Jesus? Does this help me run? Does this help me run the race in order to win the prize? Not just simply asking, is it sinful? Is it wrong? But asking, does it help me run? That's what the runner says. He doesn't look at the bowl of ice cream and say, well, it'd be wrong for me to eat that before the race. No, he says it would be foolish for me to eat that before I run this race. It's not going to help me run. It will hinder me. Does this show, does that relationship, does this form of media, working these kind of hours, devoting myself to this activity, does it help me follow Jesus and enjoy him more and stir my affections? Or does it hinder my pursuit of Christ? Again, we're not just talking about sinful things. It's often good things that we love too much, that we trust in too much, that cause us to forget who we are and who the Lord is. We are created for so much more. Jesus calls us to cast off everything that hinders us from receiving the treasure of eternal life. Finally, we must press on for the reward that endures. Peter responds to Jesus. It's always Peter, isn't it? He says, see, we, we've left everything and followed you. It's almost like Peter's saying, gee, Lord, I mean, we've done that. So we're good. We've done enough. We've left it all. 
We've left our careers. We've left our relationships. We have abandoned it all to follow you. Look at verse 29. Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus, again, he, he looks at Peter. He's not rolling his eyes. He doesn't rebuke him this time. <laughs> looks at him with love and compassion. His heart is, is full of gravity, aware of what lies just ahead. He is relentless, relentlessly patient and steadfast in love and responds to Peter with a promise that extends to you and I and sustains us in the midst of trials in this world that are sure, that are promised to come. When we ask, can I trust God when the sacrifices are real? Does he see my suffering? Does he care about my pain? If I really trust him and follow him, if I, if I stand up for the truth of the gospel in the workplace, in my workplace, and my job is on the line, and I'm hated by my coworkers, by my neighbors, as a result of my faith, will God come through when the cost seems too high? Friends, here's the precious truth that Jesus teaches. You, you can't outgive God. You can't out-sacrifice Jesus. You can't outgive him. Now, to be clear, this is not gospel, this is not prosperity gospel teaching. We reject the teaching that says if you sow a seed of faith that God will bless you with material wealth. We reject it that says if you live a life you will avoid suffering. Your health will always be good and you will have no problems. That is garbage level heresy that we reject outright. But what Jesus does here is he calls us to a life of faith. He promises to order our lives for our good in ways that we often can't see. He promises to be faithful to us until the end using whatever trials come our way to strengthen us, to transform us, to prepare us for eternity with him where we will say with the firmest conviction, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is better than anything you or I could ever give up. There is no comparison. We will never regret that sacrifice made for the Lord. And so we can take joy in being last because the last will be first. We can labor knowing that our reward is in heaven and not on this earth. We can cast off worldly comforts and pleasures, not because he delights in a life of asceticism, but because he rewards us. He's not just telling us, give up your hope for treasure. He offers us a better treasure. He rewards us, verse 30, a hundredfold. Jesus looked with love and compassion on the rich young ruler, and he wanted to free him from the chokehold that his wealth had on his heart. It was holding him back, and it threatened to destroy his soul. 
And the same is true of Jesus' posture toward you and I today. He calls us to look at our lives, to consider what holds us back, to consider what threatens our souls, to identify the idols in our life, whatever they are, that you will have the faith to give them up and look to Him instead. Will you trust Him to do that? He wants to continually refine us, continually sharpen us and strengthen us and help us and transform us and sanctify us. Do you see, brothers and sisters, that the glory of Christ is not worth comparing to anything that you might need to cut out of your life in order to better follow him? Can you pray the prayer that says, whatever the cost, Lord, make me holy. Whatever the cost, I will follow you. Whatever it takes, hands open, do what you will, remove what you must. I'm not holding anything back. Give me a singular focus toward eternity and toward your kingdom. Whatever hinders me from wholehearted devotion, Lord, I pray that you would remove it, whether it's money or power, the pursuit of comfort and ease, whether it's a relationship, whatever it takes, make me yours. Keep me aware of my need. Keep me desperate and weak and needy because I know it's good for me. I don't like it. It's not comfortable. I'd rather have it all figured out on my own. And yet the Lord places us in this place where he shows us something far greater than if we were self-sufficient. Grant me the faith, Lord, to flee every temptation and run the race to win the prize. If that is your prayer, Jesus offers you good news. He offers you grace and the promise of a treasure that will far surpass anything that this world could ever imagine. He offers you himself a new heart, new eyes to see the world differently, to grip this life more loosely. Pleasures evermore. So let's look to Jesus. Let's fix our gaze upon him. Jesus, who for our sakes became poor. Jesus, who held nothing back. Jesus, who came even when it costed him everything. Jesus, who lost everything that we might gain immeasurably more. Trust God to do the same for you, my friends. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. He will sustain us and to the end. Let's pray. Father, we again thank you for the gift of your word. We read passages like this that are shocking. They're difficult. They get personal. And yet, Lord, you do not simply demand more of us, but you want to offer us grace. You wanted more for this young man than what he could imagine. You wanted to open his eyes to see that you were trying to bless him, not demand from him. And Father, I pray that you would do the same for us today that you would open our eyes to see beyond this present moment, that you would help us to hold this life in proper perspective, 
that you would give us a gospel-infused sense of delayed gratification that we will postpone our hopes for eternity, Lord, that we will look to you to satisfy what this world will never do. Let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Your kingdom is forever. Help us to live for that day looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray in his name. Amen.